to this podcast of Thornside Stories, a mix of sun and cloud, a comic novel in stories, written and narrated for you by me, Christopher Cameron. This weekly 20-episode podcast series will contain all the text of the published book, presented one chapter a week. And welcome to Thornside. Chapter 1. Starting from Scratch Morning comes to Thornside, from across the river, when the sun first climbs through the forested hills and slowly reveals the mist that are flirting with the water. Dawn is often the best time to view any small town, people say, before more direct sunlight can reveal too much of it. Looking westward from a position next to the dam on the east bank of the river, a visitor can watch as the rising sun selects tops of trees, buildings, and houses to illuminate. The first visible object is always the steeple of St. Ninian's Anglican Church, which glows white in the light as the sunbeams creep downward toward the stonework and slowly devour the blue shadows. On autumn mornings, when the air is cooler than the river water, the mist steals on shore to shroud the base of the church in a Turner-like dreaminess. By the time the sun discovers the heavy oak front doors, the entire church is shining back at it with a warmth that is almost grateful. The effect was once said to be like the gaze of an average-looking, middle-aged woman toward her beloved after lovemaking, although the author of that metaphor was not a church member. In fact, the local citizens have long since stopped noticing any of this. But newcomers and visitors, especially the recreational boaters who sail up and down the river, always remark that dawn is the very best time to be in Thornside. The town in our story spreads across both banks of the Thorn River, which flows through Lindisfarne County, starting somewhere just north of Lockport, picking up speed and empty coffee cups as it passes by villages and towns, pausing to absorb more weeds and some empty styrofoam worm containers in Stunko Lake, and continuing stolidly southward until the thickened nutrient and polymer-rich slurry disgorges itself into Lake Ontario. A short distance down the highway that follows the river southward, just beyond Hank Blockman's GMC dealership, is the large sign welcoming visitors to Thornside, Below the town's posted population of 3,957, there is a carefully lettered reminder that carbon monoxide is a silent killer. For some time, a group on the town council has lobbied for a more upbeat slogan, but some things move slowly in Thornside, and like a deadly gas, change is one of them. St. Ninian's dominates the skyline, especially in summertime, when the leaves on the trees mask some of the town's other features, such as the giant wheel of cheese that stands beside the bridge, which carries Bridge Street across the Thorn River between river and water streets. The cheese wheel, a good twelve feet high, is made out of a galvanized alloy painted cheddar orange and touched up annually or whenever necessary. For instance, the winter someone painted a happy face on it. A can of cheddar orange spray paint is budgeted for the task and kept on the shelf behind works manager Heck Rumsey's desk at the municipal depot. 
Also on Heck's shelf are a bowling trophy from 2003, a miniature model of a cannon, a dull pewter beer stein, and a photo of the Thornside Rumballs, the local hockey team. The Rumballs are sponsored by Fluker's Bakery, which is famous throughout Lindisfarne County for its sweet pastries. The Cheese Wheel itself is a tribute to the Balderdash Cheese Company, which was founded by Charles Balderman and Dashmore Kemp in 1924. The company didn't outlast the Great Depression, but the Cheese Wheel was endowed in perpetuity by the Balderman family through a legacy bequest. Rumor has it that the bequest was dictated by Charles Balderman as he lay on his deathbed. In fact, because of his stroke-induced problems with diction, it was never confirmed whether he was actually talking about his wish for a cheese wheel or something else. Whatever he meant, the cheese wheel was funded, forged, and erected soon after his death, and endures as a symbol of the once respectable dairy industry in the county of Lindisfarne. For various reasons, it has been moved to several different locations in the town over the past 80 years. The last site before the current one was the little plot of land that hosts the war memorial near the town hall. This had to be rethought when it was discovered that the supporting ground was not as level as had been believed, and there was a fear that the wheel might one day become mobile and endanger passers-by, as well as the memorial itself. There is a plaque telling all this in terse point form to any visitors who wish to read it. Just visible over the hills are the tops of the shining steel elevators belonging to Lazy Maisie Corn Chandlers. A boater passing by could be forgiven for thinking that they resembled a giant's trash bins. They are so huge that no one can believe the county produces enough corn to fill one up, let alone the half dozen on the property. The elevators went up about 20 years ago, a business strategy that was not designed to address an increase in corn consumption at the province's dinner table but the growing need for ethanol to contaminate the valves of regular gasoline engines. During peak season, the site operates 24 hours a day, and huge trucks line up under the illuminated hoppers of the elevators to receive their share of corn cobs, like workhouse boys at the gruel pot. Every July 1st, crowds gather along the west side of the river to watch the town's beloved Canada Day Calathumpian Parade, as it proceeds along Church Street, before turning right at the cheese wheel and marching on to Bridge Street and over the river to downtown. At the very start, the parade marshal passes on horseback, leading the marching band of Thornside Collegiate and Vocational Institute, who are playing a stirring approximation of the Maple Leaf Forever. The TCBI band is followed by wagons full of crops and the farmers who grew those crops, and then a legion march past, executed by whatever veterans can still march, and accompanied by Foster McHarry on his bagpipes, and, sometimes, a drummer. Next is a series of floats pulled by tractors from the New Holland dealership, which carry bales of hay upon which are balanced local dignitaries, and often the Lindisfarne polka band if they're available. Behind them, in a carriage pulled by four of Herb Convery's majestic Clydesdales, are the year's newly crowned Soybean Queen and her court, sporting bright yellow outfits provided by Keynes, the largest grower of legumes in the county. Although the honor of being the Keynes Soybean Queen has faded in recent years, many young women still vie for the position. The yellow outfits are theirs to keep, or to sell on Kijiji if they prefer. A vintage Cadillac convertible from Hank Blockman's GMC carries the mayor and his wife, and once the mayor 
and her husband. For many years, Hamish Daggett has been trying unsuccessfully to get his funeral home's hearse into this parade of cars, but no one on the organizing committee has seemed enthusiastic about this. The finale of the parade and hands-down popular favorites are always the pumpers and hazmat trucks of the volunteer fire department, horns and sirens blaring loudly enough to terrify and traumatize anyone under the age of five. It's all in good fun. On days when July 1st falls on a Sunday, the morning service at St. Ninian's is suspended long enough for everyone to move outside and watch the parade from the church's front steps. The congregation is never large during the summer, but the parishioners are a game lot and wave their miniature Canadian flags as fervently as anyone. St. Ninian's Anglican Church is on Church Street, which was not, in fact, named because it has a church on it, but because a farmer named Thaddeus Church once owned all the property adjacent to the river. There have been debates as to whether the founders of St. Ninian's built where they did to take advantage of the street's name. But what has never been debatable is that the building's location, looking straight across the Thorn River into the morning sun, is beautiful and enviable. The original church was a wooden structure built and consecrated in 1882. Unlike most wooden churches of the day, it did not eventually burn down. Rather, it fell down in 1913, the result of a carpenter ant infestation that had weakened the belfry, which took the nave with it when it collapsed. To prevent the spread of the ants, the fire department incinerated the large pile of wood that was left behind. So, in a sense, people were still able to say that the church was a victim of fire. A new stone building was erected the following year. The property around St. Ninian's is flat and grass-covered, forming a rectangle bordered by Church Street on the east, Victoria Street on the north, Albert Street on the south, and Hellfoos Lane on the west, running between the cemetery and the pallet factory. The early wardens of St. Ninian's had lobbied to get the name of the western boundary road changed to something more fitting for a church's western boundary, but the Hellfoos family, who have owned the farm, the road, a metalworking shop, which did the original work on the cheese wheel, and much of the surrounding real estate since long before the town of Thornside was incorporated in 1887, were, and remain, uncooperative. To the immediate south of the church is the rectory, which has housed the parish incumbents and their families for nearly a hundred years. Since church rectories are traditionally among the last buildings in any town to be upgraded with conveniences like electricity or central heating, it's probable that no rector's family has ever been totally satisfied with their digs. But everyone does their best to make do. That is the way of the clergy. The broad grass yard in front of the church, featuring quiet but imposing oak trees spaced sensibly apart, sweeps across to the river, which flows dully but obstinately from north to south, or from upriver to downriver, as Thornsiders describe it. The Thorn River visits a lot of Lindisfarne County as it meanders among the drumlands that unroll themselves down to Lake Ontario. The river is made navigable to summertime leisure craft by a series of locks that climb back northward, upriver, from the lake, past Thornside and all the way to Lockport, where both water and boats are raised by a final huge lift-lock to meet the shallow, sandy Lake Owanabee. The town was established to take advantage of a broad, shallow curve in the Thorn River, where it could be easily forded by wagons. Early European settlers wanted to name the town Thornford, 
but it was eventually decided that pronouncing this was going to be too much of a strain on the teeth of the older residents. Thornside rolled over and through Bridgework more easily. Thornside isn't the largest town in the county of Lindisfarne, but it also isn't the smallest, and its citizens take some pride in this. Many of them are old enough to remember a song from the middle of the last century in which a youthful singing group asked whether there was any place they'd rather be. For most Thornside residents, the answer has always been a resounding no. A visitor sitting on the bank of the river taking in this panorama at exactly 8.15 in the morning would probably notice Mrs. Higginson walking down Church Street on the way to her post as St. Ninian's Parish Secretary. As is often the case with minor characters in other people's stories, few Thornsiders were ever sure exactly where Mrs. Higginson came from before she turned onto Church Street, and if anyone followed her home after she left the church office at five o'clock and saw where she ended up, they weren't sharing any details. All that was known about her, in other words, was gleaned from her presence in the church office during office hours. Most people, including Mrs. Higginson, considered that to be enough. In an age where big data and social media mean that everybody in the world knows what everybody else's cat looks like, she was content to stay small and unsocial, and, as far as anyone knew, catless. There had possibly been a Mr. Higginson once, but he was banished early on to the hinterlands of history. He'd most likely been wandering back there for quite a while, as Mrs. Higginson had been parish secretary for over thirty years, and was considered during that whole time to be a widow. On the other hand, since it's nearly impossible to think of a church secretary with any designation other than Mrs., it's equally possible that there never was a Mr. Higginson at all, and that the unmarried Miss Higginson had just allowed people to call her Mrs. as an expedient. Of course, Mrs. Higginson had a first name, but no one was ever heard using it. At the end of every workday, she could be seen walking out the side door of the church and down the steps, with that slightly stiff gait that one gets after sitting all day in an office, turning left onto the sidewalk and walking back up Church Street. The exception to her daily routine was on Thursdays, when she stayed at the office until 7. Choir practice began at that time on Thursdays, and she always tried to be there when the choristers arrived. Often she stayed and listened to them sing through the propers and versicles of the service for Sunday. This wasn't part of her job, but it was part of her life, and for people like Mrs. Higginson, the two can be very close. Although she rarely conversed with them, Mrs. Higginson knew all the choir members by name, and was aware when someone new had joined the group, or someone, usually old or deceased, had left, often before many of the group themselves knew. She especially watched out for love affairs. Mrs. Higginson had been suspicious of romantic liaisons in the choir since a young soprano named Charlene Sprong had fallen for Fred Hanna, a visually, if not vocally, appealing tenor whose wife Brenda worked in the municipal offices on Sourman Street. Their romance and eventual breakup, with stares across the chancel evolving from initial enchantment through naked lust and finally to sheer hatred, disrupted the harmony of the choir for months, and the two left the church separately not long after. As a residual effect, town residents noticed that many of the tags they were required to put on their garbage bags were mangled and torn when they picked them up from the municipal offices that year. For the Reverend Canon Douglas Bannon, 
rector of St. Ninian's, November had been a trying month on many fronts. To start with, he had awoken a week ago to the sure and certain knowledge that his thirteen-year-old daughter thought he was a buffoon. He couldn't say exactly why he thought this, or when she might have formed the opinion, and he couldn't even point to a specific part of her teenage behavior that would confirm it. For so long they'd been on the same wavelength and could discuss anything for hours, and now they weren't and couldn't. He felt he had somehow fallen from grace. Say, he'd said to her the other morning as she thumbed her phone, would you say that the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet is simply a result of bad postal service? Yes, she said, without pausing thumbs. Hadn't he once been her hero, her confidant? They never seemed to talk, as they often had when she was in elementary school. Should he try to win her back, discuss it with her, or just assume it was a standard case of teenage sullenness and privately plan to meet her on the other side of it, say, when she turned twenty? Maybe she was embarrassed by him. Having a father whose last name rhymed with his title may have contributed. He remembered vaguely wondering whether he should even accept the elevation to canon, knowing how ridiculous it was going to sound. People had been avoiding actually using the title and his name in the same breath. I'd like to ask the rector to say the blessing, said the head of the worship committee at their first meeting following his elevation. Canon ban, uh, father, if you will, yes. What is a canon, anyway? his daughter had asked when he announced the appointment at the dinner table. There is a title called canon, he began, in what she called his church voice, which is an honor conferred upon both the members of the clergy as well as the lay people who faithfully served the church for years and have set worthy examples to be followed. He had a feeling he'd lost her after the first phrase. Even his wife, Anna, acted as if this title was just one more way his last name was going to make all their lives even more giggle-worthy. Another bothersome item was that he was once again in his yearly talks with the church's financial controller about the steam heating in the rectory, and so far the discussions had been more heated than the pipes. The weather was getting colder as autumn deepened, and despite a series of rumblings, bangs, and crashes from the radiators that made it sound like there was a bowling alley somewhere within the walls, there had been no evidence of any heat. Bannon and his family were spending evenings huddled around space heaters and embracing hot water bottles. This was no way, said Bannon, for a family to live in the 21st century, and something must be done to upgrade the heating system before winter arrived. Have you seen that scene in Dr. Zhivago? he protested. The one where every interior surface of the Russian country house is painted white with layers of frost? The controller was slow to see the point. He didn't like foreign films but he promised to look into a contingency fund that could possibly be reallocated, as he promised every year. In addition to all this, Bannon was afraid he was going to lose his treasure of a church secretary, Mrs. Higginson, who'd been in her position for as long as anyone could remember. Since the flood, Archdeacon Silas Micklethwaite, his almost retired associate at the church, had said, Mrs. Higginson had been showing signs of disapproval lately, at what she called the deteriorating social environment in the church. A month earlier, she'd placed a carefully worded sign next to the toilet in the ladies' washroom. Please use the toilet brush. Under which someone had written, Why, are we out of toilet paper? 
And then a couple of weeks ago, he'd been standing by her desk when the door to the office had flown open and Marcy Cates, the church's curate and superintendent of the Sunday school, had come clattering in, out of breath and glowing from the basketball game she'd just refereed in the rec hall. Hey, Higgsy! Mrs. Higginson looked down at her computer screen as though she were ducking something that had been thrown at her. Most people knew she didn't appreciate the nickname. Marcy slowed as she passed the desk, deliberately lifting first her right, then her left breast, and looking under each one. Boob sweat, she said. Mrs. Higginson said nothing. Checking for boob sweat, Marcy expanded. Still getting no response, she wiped her hands on her shorts and clumped out the far door into the Christian education wing. Mrs. Higginson, who Bannon doubted had ever uttered either of those last two words, let alone side by side in a single incredible phrase, inclined her head and went back to proofreading the bulletin. Bannon was afraid her days in the church office might indeed be numbered if she continued to be exposed to this sort of thing. Yes, it had been a trying month. Not least of his ordeals was the itch. He'd first noticed it when he was lunching with his clerk of session at the Athenaeum, the new restaurant down in the trendy section of Thornside, which occupied half a block of storefront real estate on Market Street. The Thornside Business Improvement Association, which people pronounced the Tibia, had been working for years to improve the appearance of the downtown area in hopes of attracting the type of artisanal merchants who congregated in shops and kiosks along the picturesque main avenues of the neighboring towns of Workforth or Starling Falls, or even Little Houston's. But they all seemed to avoid Thornside, as if a cholera epidemic had been declared. Even the trendy organic produce outlet, Linda's Farm, a clever play on the county's name that no one ever figured out, had recently moved to a new location over in Workforth and any attempts to keep a decent restaurant going in Thornside for longer than six months usually failed. The last one, a Scottish fast food place called Eat, Pay, Leave, had not lasted the summer. No one, except possibly its bravely smiling owners, had any doubt that the Athenaeum was destined for a similar fate. Already, a coffee-time franchise holder was sizing up the property. Not even Tim Hortons, moaned the town council, coffee time. The itch began as a short, sharp spark, rose through Canon Bannon's body like a Roman candle, then decided on one small but embarrassing location and settled there. Soup too spicy? asked the clerk of session. No, just a bug bite. And so it continued, both day and night, as the Christmas carol goes. Sometimes it felt like a crew of little men was attacking his skin with tiny picks and shovels. Other times, it was as if the entire Mongolian army had been shrunk to ant size and was riding bareback across the site of the itch. There was no position in which he could sit, stand, or squirm that would make it go away. As bad as it had been when it had struck that day in the Athenaeum, it grew more vicious daily, more burningly, irritatingly, eye-crossingly distracting. Nothing helped. Not hot showers, ice cubes, moisturizer, baby powder... He even tried prayer, but the kneeling position did nothing for the itch. Rather, it inspired a symphony of hellfire to strum up and down his quivering thighs like a feather made of barbed wire. Nothing helped at all except industrious scratching, which because of the itch's location was difficult to do comfortably and nearly impossible to do in public. Eventually, 
After nearly pulling a muscle, he looked for anything mechanical that would extend his reach. Shoe horns, wooden spoons, his electric toothbrush. The itch came and went as it pleased, like a stray cat with fleas. It activated itself at random moments, often in public places. It once struck him while he was shopping at the no-frills, and the only way to distract himself was to hop up and down at one place while humming vigorously, drawing the interest of a tubby employee who was stacking tins of soup nearby. It attacked him during communion, as he was beginning the prayer of humble access. That prayer being what it is, few likely noticed as he barked out random words in a hysterical staccato, like someone being prodded from behind by a cello bow. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs, yowza! At the very least, though, it was unprofessional, and possibly sacrilegious. He approached Archdeacon Micklethwaite for advice. Micklethwaite was the one person he thought might empathize with unwelcome physical discomfort, being old, and in fact due to retire in a few weeks. He confided the problem and its location. Read your job, Douglas. Patience, offered Micklethwaite, backing away firmly, as though the itch might be contagious. Canon Bannon felt he was beyond shaving his head and rending his garments, logistically speaking. He'd been hoping for something more like a home remedy passed down through the Micklethwaite family for generations. Sitting at work in very close quarters with Mrs. Higginson presented its own unique challenges. One morning, when he felt the itch begin its fiery assault, he slid a letter opener under his clothing and managed to find the spot with the sharp end of it, achieving a painful sort of relief. It was at that moment, as he was rubbing vigorously up and down with a beatific expression on his face, that Mrs. Higginson decided to poke her head into his office to talk about the bulletin layout for the next few months. He stood up suddenly as if shot from a spring in his chair, and the letter opener fell from where it had been and clattered to the floor. They both looked at it for a long time. However, it wasn't until he drove his car into the oak tree in the rectory driveway one Thursday evening, while distracted by the itch and foolishly trying to reach it, that he decided he should seek professional help. The very next morning, he went to see his GP, ostensibly to have his injured wrist attended to, but really to find some relief from the itch. His doctor was a whip-smart woman to whom he had for years been trying to present a typical male facade of wellness and magisterial inscrutability. But deep down, he knew she saw through him. "'Where did you first feel it?' she asked. "'In the Athenaeum,' he replied. "'I mean, where on your body?' Soon he was lying on the examining table, with the breeze from the air conditioning wafting over part of him. The doctor had chosen a presentation position that would give her the best view of the afflicted area, and she shone a bright light on it for sharper vision. Her thirteen-year-old medical resident, Tiffany, looked on in guarded interest. "'It's smaller than I thought it would be,' the doctor said, causing Bannon to crane his neck to see what they were looking at. "'They're usually much larger than this,' she informed Tiffany, who nodded her head tentatively. It was at this point that the itch began its most agonizing onslaught yet, and he asked the doctor plaintively if she would consider scratching it for him just once. Tiffany took a small step back from the table, holding her clipboard against her chest. A moment later he heard the sigh of a spray bottle and felt something very cold hit his skin. The itch disappeared immediately, replaced by a feeling of cool nothingness. "'That's it!' he moaned. "'Oh, God, that's the spot! Don't stop!' Tiffany appeared ready to bolt. The problem, 
A benign rash would eventually fade, the doctor told him. Until then, he was to use the spray as required. Bannon left the doctor's office with his magic spray bottle. He loved it. He vowed he would never let it go. His head was already spinning with plans about how he would apply it at work. During services, he would certainly carry it up to the pulpit with him. It was just a question of how to squirt discreetly while preaching. Later that day, he was sitting at his desk looking lovingly at the small white bottle when he heard Mrs. Higginson say, Hello, Juliana, followed by a familiar, Hey, Higgsy, as his daughter marched into the church office. When Juliana was born, her parents wanted to name her after an English saint. They settled on Julian of Norwich, whom they both admired. Anna Bannon, however, drew the line at unisex names, so the A was added. Lately, Juliana would not let anyone call her Juliana. It's like something you'd name a Norwegian fishing boat, she protested. And have you said it out loud with our last name? They hadn't. Her friends called her Jules, and her parents called her Julie. Mrs. Higginson called her Juliana. Without breaking stride, Juliana stomped into her father's office. Dad, you have to talk to Mum. I talk to her all the time, Bannon responded, putting aside his thoughts of what kind of magic ingredient the spray must contain and what other places he might use it. She won't let me go to the concert. Which concert is that? The new girl band from Toronto, the Damp Panties. The Damp... They're singing at the hockey arena next Tuesday and everybody's going, and Mum won't let me because she said it's a school night. She probably said that because it is, Julie. So there's a rock group you want to see called... The damp, um, panties? It was at this point that Mrs. Higginson rose from her desk in the outer office, walked over, and pointedly closed Bannon's door. He and Juliana looked at it for a moment. You know you can't say words like panties in front of Mrs. Higginson, said Bannon. Why? Doesn't she wear them? A short, shocked silence. Then they both began to giggle, then laugh. I can't picture it. No, wait. I won't picture it, Bannon gasped. Maybe bloomers, put in Juliana, in tears. You are outrageous, Juliana Banana. So are you, Canon Banana. Through the office door, they could hear Mrs. Higginson typing furiously. In this way, the crumbling bridge between the two of them received a much-needed, if minor, repair. And all things shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, Bannon thought, or at least enough things. Later that day, Canon Bannon pondered what Archdeacon Micklethwaite had said to him about Job. Was there a sermon in this? But how would he talk about his affliction from the pulpit without revealing exactly where it was? No, that wouldn't work. Not with Mrs. Higginson sitting in her usual pew in the front row. He was left with the private but pithy moral, introduced by Job, but expounded on by Nietzsche, that there can be no pleasure without suffering and no satisfaction without an itch. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of Thornside Stories, A Mix of Sun and Cloud, written and narrated by me, Christopher Cameron. I'll have another chapter for you next week.